Lord Gary, thank you for those kind words. And today we are going to be continuing in our study of, of Jesus' parables um, as we look at the parable of the persistent widow. Sounds like an old episode of Perry Mason, doesn't it? The case of the persistent widow. Oh, you guys don't even know who Perry Mason is. <laughs> As we go through this parable, we're going to see uh, several lessons. First, that Jesus is coming back, but his second coming is going to be a lot different than his first was. His first, he came as a savior, but he's coming back as a judge. Jesus tells this parable to show his disciples how they should prepare for his return, and that is to pray and not give up. He will illustrate this concept with the story of an unjust judge who in every way is the antithesis of God the Father. Unlike the judge, God in his mercy responds to all who call upon him in faith. Jesus will tell his disciples through this parable that his judgment will be swift, but we'll learn that God's timing isn't exactly what we expected. And the apparent delay in Jesus' return is really a measure of God's long-suffering mercy towards us. Finally, we're going to explore the Maranatha lifestyle and learn how our faith is strengthened when we earnestly pray for Jesus' return. So Jesus told them a parable um, to show how they should always pray and not lose heart. Let's look to the Lord in prayer before we open God's word. Our God and our Father, we just ask that you would open up our hearts and our understandings, that you would explain your word in a way that we can understand, Lord, and that it would change and grow our lives. We pray that our time together would be glorifying to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look at the parable. Luke chapter 18. Matthew, Mark, Luke. It's the third book in the New Testament. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And see, it's that last verse. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth that really shows us uh, the context that we need to look at this parable in. And that is that in the previous chapter, Jesus had been answering the question of when will the Messiah come? When will the kingdom of God come here to earth? And so to really understand this parable, let's go back to Luke chapter 17, the previous chapter. And starting in verse 20. Once, on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Then he said to the disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People would tell you, there he is, or here he is. Do not go running off after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. 
But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. <clears throat> People were eating, drinking, marrying, and, given, and being given in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day that Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the rooftop, on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord, they asked. He replied, where there is a dead body, there the vulture will gather. I believe the reading of this parable of the persistent widow um, shows that we should understand that its conclusion to it's the conclusion of Jesus' teaching on the coming of the kingdom, on his second coming. The Pharisees had asked Jesus when the kingdom was coming. They meant, when would the promised Messiah come and overthrow their oppressors and reestablish the house of David as the throne, as the kingdom in Israel? Jesus' answer was baffling to those who didn't recognize him as the promised Messiah. In effect, he said, if the only way to recognize the kingdom of God is by the miraculous sign of the overthrow of Roman tyranny, then you're going to miss it completely because the kingdom of God is right here in front of you. It's Jesus. Jesus is the king. Whenever people by faith accept him as such, then he, his reign is established in their lives. So Jesus warned them not to look for catastrophic signs, that is, things like the Messiah bringing down Rome, and said the kingdom was quietly and powerfully already in their midst. But then Jesus warns that the final coming, or the second coming of Christ, will indeed be catastrophic. It will not be quiet or hidden. It won't be something that one person sees and then goes and tells another about it. It will not this time be a baby born in a manger. It will be obvious to all from horizon to horizon, like a streak of lightning that lights up the sky. But first, he must suffer these things and be rejected by this generation. So the difference between the first and the second coming of Christ is the difference between a little candle in a dark barn and a bolt of lightning that lights up the whole sky. It will be the difference between a helpless baby and a conquering king. It will be the difference between a savior who comes and dies for our sins and a holy judge who sits in judgment of those who have not accepted that payment. Then Jesus describes what the days will be like leading up to the second coming. He compares it to the flood in Noah's day and the destruction of Sodom by fire. And he says the days before Christ will be coming will, like, will be just like the days before those two catastrophic events, namely, they will be full of the busy ordinariness of life. We read that they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. And so it will be when the Son of Man is revealed. 
In other words, we can expect that most of the world will be engaged in business as usual when the lightning of Jesus' return flashes across the sky. Then he warns us not to be like Lot's wife. Lot was Abraham's nephew, and Lot and his family lived in Sodom, which was a very wicked place. God told Abraham that he was going to destroy Sodom. And so Abraham tries to make a bargain with God. Well, how about if there's 100 righteous people there? Then will you destroy it? Or what if there's only 10 righteous people there? Then will you destroy it? And it turns out Lot was the only righteous man in, in Sodom. And so God says, Lot and his family can leave before I destroy Sodom. But on her way out of town... Lot's wife already misses Sodom and all it has to offer so much that she turns back just to see it one more time and she's struck down in judgment. The warning not to be like Lot's wife is don't turn back in longing for the things of this world or you won't be fit for service in the kingdom of God. Remember, when Jesus comes, he's going to separate the sheep and the goat, those with true faith and those without it. Even if they are sleeping together or working side by side, one will be taken and one will be left. Left where, the disciples asked. They will be left for destruction. Jesus makes it clear that eternal life hangs on whether we are ready when he comes, which takes us back to Luke 18.8. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Will the warnings of Jesus to remember Lot's wife, that is not to be so absorbed by our work, our things, our recreation, that we don't read God's word, we don't fellowship together, we don't pray. In other words, we don't keep our hearts fixed on Jesus. Will we, as Jesus' disciples, endure into the end? Will Jesus find us trusting him or will we be busy securing our lives in this world? How can we endure to the end? How can we resist the relentless temptations of Sodom that cause us to be desensitized to God's kingdom? Notice that Jesus doesn't mention the sexual sins in the list of characteristics of Sodom before its destruction. And Sodom was kind of famous for its sexual sins. In fact, he doesn't mention anything that's really sinful by itself. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. He could have said they went to work, they went on vacation, they watched TV, they spent countless hours on social media. Judgment didn't come upon Sodom merely because of sexual sins, but also because all the good and ordinary activities of life were devoid of God. The good things in life can make us just as insensitive to the reality of God as the gross things in life do. The disciples of Jesus are in a tremendous battle which most people don't even know is going on. It's the battle to, remain, to maintain radical, heartfelt, self-denying faith in Jesus. Not only in the threat of persecution and sinful temptations, but also in the threat of ordinary life. The danger we face is that our faith in Jesus and our love for him and for each other will be swallowed up by the sheer ordinariness or comfort of the life we lead. So the question is, how can we endure? How can we be found with faith when Jesus returns? How can we avoid being like Lot's wife, like those who are left in judgment? So Jesus tells a parable to give us the answer. It's one of the few parables where he gives the meaning of the parable before he even tells the parable so that nobody misses it. And he told them a parable to show them they should always pray and not give up. 
Jesus' answer to the question on how you endure to the end is pray, pray, pray some more, and don't grow weary of praying. Let's look at Luke 18 and verses 2 through 5 again. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. Or really the translation is to beat me down, you know, just keep coming after me until I can't take it anymore. So wait a minute. Is Jesus now comparing God the Father to a corrupt, unjust judge? No, it's like when Jesus' own coming is compared to the coming of a thief in the night. The point of comparison is not that Jesus is a thief, but that his second coming is sudden and unexpected. So the point of comparison is not that, the that God is an unjust judge, but that he, unlike the judge, responds with help to those who cry out to him day and night. If you always pray and don't lose heart, you will not be like Lot's wife. Your priorities will change. You will not be left in judgment because the things of this world won't hold you prisoner. You will endure in faith and love, and God will vindicate you when the Son of Man comes. Therefore, always pray and do not lose heart. This command increases in urgency as we see the end of the age drawing near. In 1 Peter we read, the end of all things is near, therefore be alert and, sober and of sober mind so that you may pray. The pressures of worldliness will become greater as the end draws near. Therefore, the more, all the more we must be alert and serious and single-minded in prayer so we do not lose heart. So how does the parable in Luke 18 encourage us to keep on praying? Well, a widow comes to an unjust judge and pleads for help. Jesus describes it this way, we read, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. He didn't name that town, he didn't have to. Corrupt judges were familiar characters throughout the culture at this time. The judge would have been a local magistrate who was appointed by Rome. And those judges were notoriously lacking in morals and in scruples. The Jews generally regarded them with utter disdain. They were sort of on a par with tax collectors. The Jews referred to them as robber judges. Jesus refers to him as the unjust judge. The other character in this story is a poor widow. She is the victim of some injustice or oppression. And she is a widow, which means in this culture that she is weak and poor and without a man to speak for her. The widow is a picture of us, poor and powerless, helpless, deprived, lowly, unknown, unloved, uncared for, or otherwise desperate. Her only source of help is this judge. Our only source of help is God. So the widow pleads her case to the judge, but the judge's response to her was unbelievably cold. He simply refused her. He couldn't be bothered. We read that he couldn't care less. His utter lack of any concern or compassion for her is shocking, but she continues to come back to him to plead for justice. You know, 20 years ago, I was arguing a case before a judge. Now, this judge wasn't corrupt or unjust, but he was lazy. And so 
I kept arguing with him the law, and he didn't get it. And he kept this, you know, he said, no, I'm not, I'm not doing that. So the more he refused, the more I argued with him. And then finally he says to me, Timmy, he didn't call me Attorney Lennis. He called me Timmy. You know, I have to call him your honor. It wasn't a term of endearment. It was a term to show me who has the power and who doesn't. He said, Timmy, I can't do that. The law doesn't permit it. Well, I had the law right there. I had the statute. I had it all marked. I had it all highlighted. And so I handed him the book and I said, no, judge, it's, it's right here. The law not only permits it, it requires you to do that. He didn't even look at the book. He took it and he threw it at me. He threw the book at me. He literally threw the book at me. <laughs> and he denied my motion and he dismissed my case. And I walked out of there beaten like, a, you know, with my tail between my legs. But the widow, she doesn't give up. She comes again and again until he gives her the help that she needs. Not because he repented of his wickedness or admitted that he was wrong or the justice of the widow's case was right. He just wanted to get rid of her. Is Jesus really comparing God the Father to an unjust judge? Is he saying that if you can wear out an unjust human judge, then you may have a chance to wear out God so that he helps you just to get you off his back? Well, of course not. The parable shows that everything hangs on God being different from the judge. He's the anti-unjust judge. We learn two things about the judge that are obstacles to, her, to his helping the widow. First, he did not fear God, and therefore he was not prone to help the widow. Unlike the judge, God yearns to help those who cry out to him. To not fear God, as the unjust judge did, is to really deny the existence of God. On the other hand, God in mercy responds to those who call out to him in faith. Let me be clear about this. When I say all who call out to him in faith, that means those who call out to him in repentance. Those who recognize their need for a savior and by faith accept Jesus' substitutionary death for their sins. Therefore, if a judge who has no fear of God can be pers persuaded by persistent petitions, how much more certain can we be that, that God will help those who cry out to him both day and night? So what is Jesus telling them? What is the point of this parable? He stated it at the very beginning to show them that they should always pray and not lose heart. Remember, Jesus in Luke 17 in the chapter before has just painted the picture of his second coming, including the final war for all humanity. And that final battle is called Armageddon. And it's when Christ comes and destroys all his enemies. And we read in Revelations that after that battle, there will be such terrible slaughter that all the birds will be filled with their flesh. He's not and, and he just got done telling them that where the body is, there also the vultures will be. It's a clear reference to this last battle of Armageddon. So this parable of the persistent widow is being told while the theme of Jesus' second coming is still on the minds of his listeners. The point Jesus is making is that while his disciples await his return, especially as the world grows more wicked and more worthy of judgment, he wants his elect, his chosen ones, those who have accepted him by faith, to keep praying and not lose heart. It's an encouragement to pray for strength to endure until the end. 
You know, we see the Word of God mocked and vilified and censured. Christians are routinely maligned and persecuted and oppressed, even martyred for their faith. We long for Jesus to return, to put an end to ungodliness and oppression, to establish his kingdom and to destroy sin forever. Jesus himself taught us in the Lord's Prayer, he taught us to pray, thy kingdom come. Here he encourages us to pray that prayer relentlessly and to not lose heart. The expression to lose heart in Greek speaks of giving up from exhaustion or even worse, from cowardice. But the point is, don't give up hope that Jesus is coming. God, of course, is nothing like the unjust judge. The argument Jesus is making is an argument from the lesser to the greater through the contrast between the two. If such a wicked, deprived judge can be persuaded by sure per perseverance to grant justice to a widow whom he doesn't care anything about, in verse Luke 18, 7, will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, you will see that they get justice quickly. Quickly? Really? It's been 2,000 years. When Jesus does return, God's vengeance against the wicked will be swift and complete and terrible. Meanwhile, he does not delay his justice out of apathy or indifference. He delays that justice because he is merciful. Look what it says in 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The apparent delay that we are living in is the measure of God's long-suffering mercy. He will not shorten the time until every last one of his chosen is saved. Now, my father, his name was Bob, was the first in his family to become a believer. And he desperately wanted his older brother, Jim, to come to know the Lord. And so for 40 years, he prayed for Uncle Jim, and he witnessed to him, and he shared his faith with him. And Uncle Jim, by poor choices that he'd made in his life, was often in trouble. And my father, for 40 years, was bailing him out, much to the chagrin of my mother. And for 40 years, he prayed, and then he got sick with cancer, and he died. And he never got to see the fruit of his prayers. But at his funeral, we were living in Massachusetts at the time, my Uncle Jim just showed up. He came from Minnesota. And he went up to, his, to my mom and he said, I want to know Bob's God. And my mom, of all people, got to lead him to the Lord. Forty years praying for someone. It's a long time, right? It's a blink of the eye in God's timetable. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The implication is that prayer and faith stand and fall together. John Piper says it this way, faith is the furnace of our lives. Its fuel is the grace of God and the divinely appointed shovel for feeding the burner is prayer. If you lose heart and lay down the shovel, the fire will go, grow out, go out and you will grow cold and hard. It's impossible to live the Christian life faithfully unless it's in the light of the second coming. 
hey, knowing the end of the story, Jesus is coming back, and guess what? He wins, and he's going to call those who have true faith in him to live with him forever. Knowing the end of that story gives us confidence and stability. Are we praying faithfully for Jesus' return? I suspect that if he were to return today, he would find multitudes who call themselves Christians who are totally unprepared for him, who are not particularly eager for him to, call, to come, and not too enthralled with their, too enthralled with this life and worldly values to even think about it much. But that's not real faith, is it? The heartfelt cry of the true believer is seen in 1 Corinthians 16, O Lord, come. The Aramaic word for that is Maranatha. It's how the early Christians greeted each other so that they would not lose heart. Even now, those who, uh, of you who love Jesus and long for his appearing must not lose heart. Instead, we live the Maranatha lifestyle. We continue to pray and to plead for the return of Jesus, not merely because we want to be vindicated, but also because we want Jesus to be glorified. And when you live that way and you pray that way, and you plead that way, it changes everything about your life. 2,000 years later, our hope still burns brightly. Our confidence that Jesus will keep his word is fast and firm. So we pray persistently that Jesus would come soon in order to vindicate his chosen, to glorify himself, to punish those who refuse him, to dethrone Satan, to establish his kingdom, and to bring everlasting peace. But we also pray that the unsaved will come to saving faith. We pray relentlessly for Jesus to come and reign as King of kings and Lord of lords and create the eternal new heaven and new earth. We echo the closing plea that is in Revelations. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Live that kind of life of anticipation until he comes and just watch how that changes your life. Remember the lazy judge I was telling you about? Well, a couple weeks after he threw the book at me, I was back in the judge's chambers on a pretrial in another matter. And as I was walking out, I heard this voice call out, hey, Timmy, come here. And so I walked into his chambers. And he says to me, I saw you preaching on TV. What's that about? You know, at that time, the, the services here at, at Groton Bible Chapel were broadcast later in the week on cable access. Who watched cable access, you know? <laughs> so my secret was out. So he calls me in the chambers. He wants to know what it's about. And I, told, I, I shared my faith with him. Um, and several times over the next several months, you know, if I was back in chambers, he'd call him, Timmy, come here. I want to talk to you again. And, and so we, we would talk back and forth. He later died. I don't know if he ever made that faith commitment. I don't know if our conversations ever changed him, but I know this, it changed me. It gave me confidence in my faith, confidence that the word of God is powerful and true, confidence to pray, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you so much that you are so merciful that you would delay your second coming just so that those who don't know you would have a chance to do so, Lord, and not have to suffer eternal separation from you. 
Lord, we just pray that if there's any here that don't know you today, that you would touch their hearts, Lord, in a way that they could come to know you and accept Jesus' death on the cross. Lord, our prayer fervently today is that we would endure to the end and that that end would come quickly. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.